1: Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host. Our guest today is Paul Weiss. He is CEO of Paper Planes. We're going to talk about the world of cannabis and what's going on in the market. We're going to talk about investing and some of these business opportunities really, what's uh, where the challenges are, but also where the opportunities are and what we're learning. Uh, cannabis obviously continues to grow and change and evolve. Um, we've been in sort of particular uh, challenging times recently, um, but you know I always find that within those, there are learnings and there are opportunities and opportunities to kind of rethink and, and rescale. So, with all that, Paul, welcome to the program.
0: Bruce, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure. Before we dig into everything that's going on in the world of cannabis today, uh, let's get a little background. Uh, Tell us, how did did you get into cannabis? How did you uh, us the story of Paper Planes? Give us a little background.
0: Well, there's always two roads that people seem to take into this business, either your legacy and you came up that way or you came in from some type of financial background and Mm -hmm. found your way in. I'm the latter. I started as a private investor into the space about five or six years ago, and okay. um, got very, very interested in it. And as I learned more about it, I, I saw the opportunity as well as the gaps as well as the challenges. I've always loved the plant personally, so I was always comfortable with it. And as California went recreational, I got very serious about becoming more on the operation side and becoming yeah. an operator as opposed to just an investor. I was able to connect with a really great legacy partner named Carter Latimer who came out of the true OG side of the business. I've often said it's almost like chocolate in your peanut butter where we looked at each other and we needed each other for different reasons. We were smart enough to know what we didn't know. Yeah. And we connected. And three years ago, we had an opportunity where I was available. He was looking for to get a permanent space to reintroduce his brand after about two years out of the market. It's a 12-year-old brand. And we found a space to purchase. I capitalized that with an investor group. And part of that was I was asked to be the CEO, which I wanted to be very much. Mm-hmm. And I've been a full-time operator, moved to California. As course, Cortez did, burned his ships and went on <laughs> to the new world. And that's really what I grew my hair out and the whole thing. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's my journey here. And now I really work as you know one half of a team that does the block and tackle business side, operational side, and making sure that, you know, all the trains run on time and it's capitalized properly, while my partner does the strategic cannabis side, sells all the product, and makes sure that we're heading the right direction from a cannabis perspective.
1: Yeah. I'm curious, I mean, do you feel like that is kind of a a magical partnership setup for cannabis? I mean, given where we are in terms of, you know, understanding the history of cannabis and kind of the nuance of, Cultivating and processing cannabis, and then kind of the challenges on the financing, the business side. Like, is this like a match made in heaven? Is this you know, it just happened to work for you? I'm kind of, as you've seen other companies and and you know, leadership teams and stuff work. Where do you feel like you've really figured out something secret?
0: It's an excellent question. Dysfunction of most management teams in any industry, you know, comes about where you may have a founder that has a big gap but doesn't recognize it, or you have a financial person who comes in with an oversized ego and sense of himself. and to try to get the balance right really transcends cannabis. It's pretty much every industry. But I certainly came into this understanding that the cannabis industry and making products and consumer preferences is a very unique and specific set of skills. Carter also understood that he had no sense on how to capitalize and run structure. In fact, that world looks at that world looks at the finance side with a great deal of skepticism. Yeah. To be quite generous with it. So yeah, I think we have a really great I don't know if it's a magic situation, but it's certainly the secret sauce and the secret sauce is to try to cover all the bases, which is from the cannabis world and corporate governance world and finding partnership where each side really respects those lanes that's the human component and yeah carter and i have found that i've seen a lot of dysfunctional management teams in this business i've seen companies with great potential bruce yeah Yeah. just can't get out of their own way and then their products kind of flame out because they start making money, which is hard enough to do, and then starts the infighting. And it's almost like a trope in this industry. So yeah, sure. it is the secret sauce. And, and I do attribute our success to the fact that Carter and I understand how to do what we do individually and how to work together as a team.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I'm curious a little bit about kind of products and branding. Like where have you chosen a focus? Why, what's worked out, what hasn't worked out? Give us some insights on in what you've been learning in, in terms of actually operating and putting product into the market.
0: Well, I've had a view prior to meeting Carter, that the extract side, which is vape carts, dabable products, and edibles, is gonna be the most important part of the market going forward and flour would be less and less so. That hasn't happened dramatically. I'd say right now flour is probably 50, 60% of gross sales and the rest is different types of extracts. But the extract side's growing very, very rapidly. I say that because Carter, is really one of the foundational legacy people in the BHO type seven butane um, extraction world. And he's done amazing things an award winner for many years and had a vision of creating the absolute best products at the absolute best prices, which of course is a formula for success. And I came into this thinking to myself, I just can't be working for a company selling flour. Yeah, there is differences, but it's a very commoditized market, and it's much harder to compete in, whereas extracts, you can stick out much more if you can find an SOP to bring the plant out. So Mm -hmm. our company is, at this point, almost 100% extracts, and that would be vape carts, shatter, and dabable live resin, and some edible products. But we just, throughout the last year, acquired two farms in Grass Valley, and we've been using that cannabis to fuel our products that we currently have and to use for feedstock. But in the process, we already have the packaging designed of bringing out our own flour brand on the Paper Planes brand. There's been so much demand for it. We have a grower that we're just very lucky to have named Christian Anderson. And Christian is just one of the most talented growers in Cali, has been for a long time. And we just feel that if we're only using it for our extraction or even some bulking out, we're not monetizing it to the best we could, nor are we bringing it to the market the way the market should recognize it. So I'd say next year, if you ask me the same question in 12 months, I will say that we're about 20 or 30 percent of our sales, I hope, are in flower sales under the Paper Planes brand and the mm-hmm. rest is extracts.
1: Yeah. And how, I mean, I guess operationally, uh, how does that complicate things and and how have you kind of managed, you know, the the sort of diversifying products and, you know, complicating your your lives from an operation point of view?
0: That's an interesting question. I have a flow chart that's incomprehensible that (laughs) i used in my presentations to try to explain that. So the answer is a non-answer, but I'll give it to you anyway. The answer is we have a lot of optionality that's usually driven by liquidity. And we have choices. If we had all of the perfect conditions all of the time, we could make optimal decisions on how to implement what flour to bulk out, what flour to use for our products, what flour is going to become the best either vape carts or dabable live resin products or cured products. But yeah. you just don't know how the plant's going to come through for extracts. You don't know where in the cycle your liquidity is, which could drive, say, bulking out flour instead of using it for our products, which is a longer lead time, which means we have to make that choice. So it really comes down to, we have a machine that we can constantly use to make decisions. The machine is this big, not vertically integrated, but almost vertically integrated process. And that drives our decision-making, which is really where we are in a given point in time.
1: Yeah. I kind of, I imagine, uh, kind of a flow chart with stages in the process and the decision points that, you know, pulls in certain data around market and capital. And, you know, if 30% is this, then you go this way. And if it's 80% this, then you go that
0: way kind of thing. Exactly. Where's the price in the bulk market? How is the flour coming through our process to make it into extracted products? There's so many little variables. And it's actually one of the hardest things to communicate to investors because you don't really have a lot of earnings visibility. There's yeah. so many inputs to it and makes it hard but at the same time it's what we deal with. I actually find it to be the most stimulating aspect of what I do for a living, which is, you know, really every month where it's like the Star Trek Deep Space 9, the adventure comes to us every month. <laughs> we have to kind of figure out what we're going to do. So yeah. that's our company right now.
1: How I guess how data driven is that? I mean, I obviously at a at a base level it's data driven, but like how much are you, you know, pulling in data from internal data, external data, market data, like where I guess where what data really have you found key? Where do you find it? And where do you feel like you've got, you know, kind of a competitive advantage here around being able to do that?
0: I wish that we had the resources to generate the kind of data that would allow me to say that we're a data driven company on our decisions, but we just don't have that level of granularity as much as I'd love to have it. What we tend to look at is from a data perspective is our sell through at stores. Where the market is what the orders are coming in that's really easy data to grasp it's always there also how is the plant moving through the process the yields the color those types of points are not data points but they're almost artistic <clears throat> points like craft points so yeah. a lot of our decision making is made when we're dealing with things almost in real time we have to make certain decisions in advance, which is always agonizing, which is capitalizing our packaging, capitalizing these purchases for things that we're not going to realize for three months or six months. And of course, if you're wrong, you're wrong, you try to get the balance not to over order or under order. And data plays a part in it. But it is a lot of it is just knowing the market, understanding what the consumer preferences are and taking bets.
1: Yeah. No, it's all about smart bets. <laughs> Many it, businesses. Sometimes
0: it feels disproportionately towards smart bets, but we do our best with that to try to minimize risk. But it is a business of risk because our products are not on the shelf that long. Our sell through is very fast. We're very lucky that way. So we're yeah. constantly rethinking what's going to be relevant in six months and three months. And that's yeah. tough to do.
1: Any big learnings that you can share, uh, you know, th- things that maybe didn't go the right way or mistakes that you made that you, you kind of had to then adjust for that you've changed your model based on?
0: well if i was able to learn from my mistakes i'd probably be the smartest guy in the world and i say that tongue-in-cheek but this industry is about correcting yourself constantly so let me be specific i would say that using financial forecasts in this business is a very very difficult thing to do and we've raised capital in millions of dollars and either i'm low or i'm high but i'm never on it and there's always changes and pivots so i've learned that you've really got to be as conservative as possible and know that your investors are sophisticated enough to know what business they're investing in it's a pretty tough environment it really requires you to have a fairly detailed understanding of the volatile nature and the swings of this industry so i've learned that communicating with my investors is extremely important i send out a quarterly update every three months it's usually 10 or 12 pages And I've been doing that for three years now, and I get very few calls and questions because I really try to get ahead of it. And that was the process of learning that I'm always wrong on what I think is gonna happen. So I better start preparing people for, here's what's going right, here's my challenges, here's the things that we think we hope to happen, and so forth. So that was a big one. Another one is that the rate of change has surprised the hell out of me, Bruce. This industry, is throwing fastballs at you just when you think you've got a beat on things you get an herbal situation that blows up and then yep. you've got to repivot from that or things like that that really change we have ar issues minor ones but one of our largest accounts and it would be the least likely offender that you could imagine yeah. and then we're dealing with that so getting into this business with a sense of being over capitalized is probably being barely requisite properly capitalized, and there's very little liquidity in the business to begin with. So the dynamic nature of the business is far more challenging than most people can deal with, whether they're investors or operators. I've learned a lot. Every month I seem to get a lot smarter about being guardedly smart about what I'm doing and understanding that what I think's right today will almost certainly have to be adjusted in 30 days.
1: Yeah. Bruce Eckfeld here. Are you a founder or CEO looking to grow and scale your business? Are you feeling stuck and struggling to get to the next level? Maybe your leadership team is just not aligned and lacking accountability. I can help. I work with companies to craft highly effective and scalable growth strategies and create high-performance leadership teams to execute on them. Using my unique combination of frameworks and tools from Scaling Up, Metronomics, 3Hag, Lean and Agile, and my own experience as a founder and CEO of an Inc. 500 company, I help teams accelerate their growth, increase profitability, and dramatically reduce risk and drama as we go. If you'd like to learn more about how I can help, check out my website at Eckfeldt.com or email me at bruce at That's Eckfeldt.com. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot Now on to the episode. Do you feel like other companies uh, in the cannabis space now are, are erring, have, have errors on the production side or the capital side or it a mix like where where do you feel like most other companies struggle?
0: Well, number one is liquidity, Bruce. It's a fascinating situation because it's not that there's allocators of capital that are doing it into a small concentrated group. There's almost no liquidity being spread around right now. The private equity firms are having, I'm sure, issues with their LPs that are underwater sure. on certain funds. They're dealing with I know that private equity firms have a lot of calls amongst themselves trying to sell each other's portfolio companies to <laughs> each other, how great they're all doing and everyone knows better. So yeah. when you don't have upstream capital, it's not going to flow downstream. So there's really no liquidity going around. People have either levered up their assets already or you know whatever's left and not nailed down they're doing. So I would say with certainty, the number one challenge in the industry is liquidity. And I talk about this all the time that The companies that could manage this illiquid situation properly and grow through it, not just sustain themselves, are going to be the major, major winners. The other side is a corollary to that, the second reason. And the second issue is internal dynamics being really squozen because of the liquidity issue. So for a team to manage themselves properly and not start picking at each other's vulnerabilities and not start becoming defensive or aggressive in meetings because things aren't happening the way they were told they were going to happen, that starts a rot that gets exacerbated by that illiquidity squeeze. So even though that's a second reason or a second issue, It really comes down to tight times make it really tough and they expose a lot of underlying weaknesses. There's a couple of really good companies that I know are struggling and they're struggling because of the internal problems, not necessarily their business model. And I'm seeing both.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the pressure cooker situation. Yeah. So let's talk about the market a little bit. I mean, obviously, a lot has been happening uh, both, um, you know, through kind of intentions or changes in regulatory systems, situations, policies, and then kind of the consequences of all that. And it's affecting the industry. And we've got various sort of swings and uh, whipsaws and stuff going on here. I mean, give, give us your kind of take on what the challenges have been and how have you kind of navigated some of these things over the last six, 12 months?
0: So I'd say the number one change is, again, the illiquidity of the nature of the industry. Investors yeah. have gotten tired. Returns haven't been exactly what they want. And funders aren't liquid to make those downstream investments. So I don't want to go and sound like a repetitive person, but it really is a big one. I think another major problem is the California market has a major dysfunction in the way it's set up with a four tiered system. Yeah, Those four tiers are cultivation, manufacturing distribution and then retail and adding that distribution layer adds cost it adds delays it makes it very difficult to deal with i'm not even going to harp on 280e and all the things that we all (laughs) feel terrible about but i feel particularly challenged in the california environment that a big part of our job is figuring out how to deal with this complex organizational chart that they've made to get product from the plant into people's you know pockets. And yeah. that hasn't had enough mitigation going forward. I don't know how detailed you want to get, Bruce, but the shifting of the excise tax to the retailers, oh boy, that was a huge mess. That's created an AR squeeze because everybody's cash is being escrowed once a quarter if they escrow it yeah. and they don't have it to give to their downstream brands. The squeeze goes everywhere, so there's a lot of structural issues that California's created in the last twelve months that keep this state from taking its four to five hundred million dollars a monthly revenue and making it allocated in a way that the industry grows. It's actually almost a catheter on its growth, and that last twelve months has been particularly easy to see, and the solutions seem obvious, but the political goal's obviously not there,
1: yeah what And what would you change i mean like if you if you could change one or two things, is there specific things that you would just uh, you know undo in terms of policy or structure?
0: Yes, I would eliminate the distribution component and allow companies to do direct distribution. I think that there should probably be more regulatory oversight if that happens to make sure that there's some level of requirement, but to be a distributor is a big barrier to entry. The distributors become quite powerful they tend to want to distribute their own brands or other brands and they make it more difficult. So that's something that I would take a good, hard look at. I think enforcement or lack thereof is really well, what I really want to say yeah. is a major problem here. There's no incentive not to sell your product to burner distros that take it across state lines or to, for cultivators to backdoor their product out to the black market. There's disincentive to be white market and compliant. I was speaking at the Benzinga conference in Chicago, and I made the point and I got a lot of attention that we are 100% compliant. It's not because I want to be a choir boy. It's just because how do you explain to a would-be buyer of our company in the future quality of earnings when I can tell them that 40% of these earnings won't survive if you buy us and you only want to be compliant?
1: Yeah, exactly. I
0: mean, these are major issues for me thinking about exits, thinking about how we want to grow our company and how we want to raise capital. Yeah. So the the enforcement issue in California needs to be taken a lot more seriously. I'm hearing that they're doing more. I'm not actually seeing the results of that yet.
1: I mean, so what do they actually do? I mean, what are they actually doing to enforce? And and what it's would...
0: almost non-existent. They're really, you can have a grow be very unlikely ever be audited or looked at, and then sell. A lot of people I know have opportunities to sell to quote-unquote distros. So as you know, in California, if you're a manufacturer, you, sell, you, you move your product through a distribution company. Yeah. Those distribution companies then push the product out to the retail side. Those distribution companies can be very sketchy. They could just be people that take in product and go ahead and move it out of the state, and then that uh-huh. license disappears. None of them are getting – I may have heard of one, but yeah. there's just so much of that, and it really hurts the market.
1: Yeah, and it's clear that I call it the the dark matter of cannabis, right? Like you have all this this un untalked about, unspoken, like unregistered kind of huge uh element that forces or impacts the the legal market and um you know we don't really kind of well i mean i think people understand it but we don't talk about it and it's not kind of modeled very well so
0: it also i'll add one thing it adds to price compression so California's yeah. seen a pretty significant amount of price compression and the black market only adds to it i'm always blown away when i go to these more monopolistic markets like florida and others and a gram of our product which we will wholesale out for 12 or 15 dollars is 40 or 70 dollars in other markets and it's the same product i mean the production's fractionally higher there but that's basically it it's amazing
1: and why because they don't because the illicit market is just not as powerful there
0: i think it's a combination of factors i think the number one is that they keep it medical in many places or yeah. pseudo medical i call it and that allows a restriction of the number of licenses for retail shops. There's not a lot of competition. So what ends up happening is you have lousy product at extremely high prices. And when we have investors or people that we know that come from out of town and then try our product, they're blown away by it. And when I tell them that, you know, it's less than half the cost in our dispensary that they're paying for their garbage that they're buying in other states under the brand name of the dispensary, which is all they're doing is they're basically telling you know taking trim and making it into it blows people away, but there's a huge disparity there. One of the reasons we like these licensing deals that we're approaching, we haven't done any at scale yet, is because of this price disparity. And in licensing deals, you tend to make a percentage of the gross revenue. So you can sell a lot less product and make a lot more money, which is not capitalistic, it's ridiculous, but that's the dysfunction of this industry.
1: Yeah. And any markets that, that you're particularly interested in or you think of they're doing well in
0: some of these other states? I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I don't have a direct experience with those markets. We have a deal in Florida that has yet to take off. We've signed it with a really great company. They named the Flowery. They're based in South Florida and they have, I think, seven or 10 dispensaries now, high volume plus a big delivery service. But the problem that we've had is our name of all things. So in this very conservative environment that is now Florida, our name, Paper Plains, sounds too much like a kid's toy or something. So even though our boxes are the right colors, black and white and all these things, uh, we're having trouble getting our product on shelves just because we can't produce it yet. So we're dealing with the legal aspects of that as absolutely ridiculous as that sounds.
1: But this is a, a regulatory point of view or like, why, like why is this getting gummed up?
0: It's the DeSantis administration showing that they 're protecting the consumer by Got it. holding Got it. back companies like ours, and i 'm not sour grapes about it it 's just frustrating as heck, but aside from that, there are other very good markets that we are just not that familiar with bruce so i don 't want to speak to those directly i just don 't know that much about them
1: yeah i'm curious i mean what 's your i guess thinking or strategy about this potential federal legalization or at least rescheduling of some of this stuff I mean is that Is this like a huge pivot to your business is this like yeah we'll see when it happens it's like yeah it's gonna happen but it like we're still gonna be operating basically the way we are for quite some time like how how does this kind of future planning with uh kind of the federal question
0: um play out for you it does feel a lot like a holographic carrot doesn't it (laughs) Uh, it really does i've never personally bought into the idea that we're going to have this huge structural, positive structural change in the near term. I just think that there's too difficult to coordinate. I think there'll be some type of rescheduling. It will take some time. It won't be descheduling, and mind you, there's a huge difference there, but something will happen, I would guess, in a year or two. The idea of the federal government making it easier for cannabis to be nationally done, I mean, you've gotta get through an election cycle, then you've got a year or two of studying it, so it's gotta be several years out, which, by the way, is fine for us. We're in growth mode and we'd like to be the prettiest girl at the dance when things open up and we're still, you know, getting ourselves into a position as a lot of companies are. So if you ask a lot of CEOs that are in growth mode and either through M&A growth or organic growth or both growth, that what would they like? They'll all tell you a little more time. I mean, we just want more time to continue to consolidate what we see happening and grow further. So I'm just fine waiting 24 or 36 months for something dramatic to happen. But I think that's probably the time frame you're talking about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree. Um, Anything else? You mentioned the the, uh, introduction of Flower. Anything else on your strategic plan, Horizons here that um, you're looking forward to or excited about?
0: Well, I'm excited about the opportunity to grow while others are struggling and that's a terrible thing to say but it's true <laughs> and we have to be truth savers, right bruce and yeah. there's more and more shelf space as other companies have all these struggles we just talked about so i'm excited about time i think time is on our side my number one goal for the company is to make sure that we try to make more income than we have in expenses and not mm-hmm. have to go to the market for liquidity which is very very difficult to do but in general i think we're going to keep doing what we're doing but there's so much change coming every month as i'd mentioned at the head of this interview that we just want to keep adapting and pivoting properly staying extremely focused on what we do making great products bringing them to market at a very good price staying to our for what people know that we make which is the tastiest turpiest extracts and eventually having our flour which would be Grown at our farms in Grass Valley, and seeing how that goes for the next 12 months, I'm sure in 10 or 12 months I'll have a very different view of what the next 10 or 12 months should look like. But right now, it's block and tackle and actualize our goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Paul, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Paper Planes, what's the best way to get that
0: information? Well, our website's paperplanes-ca.com. Paperplanes with a hyphen ca.com. Uh, take a look. We're on Instagram as well. I don't know, I shouldn't say that, but we are. <laughs> and I'm not going to give you the hashtag paperplanes.extracts, but I didn't say that. And really, anytime you want to reach out through either of those mediums, please do. We have about 70,000 followers on Instagram, a lot of visitors on our website. We're in about 300 plus shops in California, growing every month, bottom to state up. So we're pretty well exposed. And If you go on our website and you want to see where our products are sold or what delivery companies are selling them, it's all linked in there. Just put in your zip code or your address and we'll take care of you. And hopefully you'll have a great experience with our products.
1: Awesome. Paul, it's been a pleasure. I'll make sure all that information is in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time today. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time.